Conspiracy theories, they are rampant in today's America. Donald Trump's re-election was overturned by rigged voting machines. Big Pharma created COVID-19 to increase profits. Vaccinations and masks, they're not for public health. They're about politics. Of course, there is no concrete evidence for those claims, but pointing that out can make true believers more persuaded than ever. So why do people see patterns, sometimes dangerous, even threatening patterns, that aren't really there? That's a timely and very important question, and Jennifer Whitson has some answers. She's a professor of management and organizations at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. Hello again, I'm Oren Alney, and this is the latest episode of How the World Works, a podcast from UCLA Anderson. And I'm happy to welcome Professor Jennifer Whitson. Hi. Hi, Warren. I'm glad to be here. Glad to have you. So you say you're a student of control. How does that apply to this question about conspiracy theories? So ever since I was in grad school, a lot of my research interest has focused on when we feel control over our environment or when we feel that we don't have control over our environment and what that means for how we think about the world around us. And one of the sort of fundamental threads that I've been following is how we make sense of the world when we lack control. What my research shows is that lacking control is an inherently sort of aversive state. Nobody likes it. And so we will often try to regain control sort of objectively or practically, but the world's a very complicated place. Often that's not something we can actually accomplish. And so in those situations, we will sometimes instinctively try to regain control perceptually by seeing structure in the world around us that might not really be there at the end of the day. So my initial work looked at this illusory pattern perception. We found that when people lacked control, they were more likely to see faces in static. They were more likely to make causal connections that weren't real. So I walked underneath this ladder and that's why there's a dent in my car. But then also connections between people that weren't really warranted and that might even be dark or threatening in nature, such as conspiracies. So what are your hopes for this research? What do you want to accomplish? You know, part of me is interested in the fundamentals. How do we understand the world around us? What's the difference between when we look at a situation and we say, oh, I have no idea what's going on here versus, oh, I know what's happening. And when are we right and wrong about those things? I'm part of like a tremendous number of people, a tremendous effort to kind of understand how do conspiracy theories form, spread, cling. That's just a, a tremendous effort on a, a lot of the community right now. But I do hope that some of this can become a useful tool in preventing the nastier forms of illusory patterns from taking hold. So you talk about the lack of a sense of control and you're able to study that. Well, how do you get to that and how do you know about it? Otherwise, it just sounds like your opinion. I mean, I think a couple of different ways. And so, you know, what I'd like to say first is there are some things that if you ask people directly about them, you know, they might be misrepresenting things. It might just be their opinion and not reality. I do think that with sense of control, that if you ask people, hey, right now, do you feel like you have little control over the things that happen to me? If they say, yeah, that describes my situation right now, I find it hard to imagine a situation in which they would be you know, misrepresenting their feelings in that situation. So like, if you ask people about their sense of control, I, I do think that their answers in this situation are pretty authentic. That said, however, you know, I am an experimentalist, and so we do actually manipulate sense of control in a number of ways. So one of the methods that we've used in some of our studies involve putting people into a task 
where we are telling them that their job is to correctly understand a sequence that a computer is showing them. In one of the conditions, we give them consistent feedback or inconsistent feedback, actually, that sometimes they're a little bit right about the process, sometimes they're a little bit wrong. In the other condition, we don't give participants any feedback at all. We just say, hey, it's your job to figure this out. And so in this latter condition, they're just taking a long thing. You know, here's what I think. Here's my thoughts. Here's my ideas about what's happening. In the first condition, they might say, here's my idea about what's happening. And then we say, yep, you're wrong. They say, oh, here's my, okay, okay, okay. Well, here's my idea now about what's happening. We say, oh, you're right. And they say, oh, good, good. Okay, so I'm going to build on that. Here's my next idea. And we say, oh, you're wrong. And in fact, in this condition, the feedback is random. And so they never get a grip on what's going on. They basically don't have control over their performance in this task. And so that's one very practical way we induce a sense of lacking control. And so after we run people through this task that generates a real sense that they don't have control over their performance, we then present them with our scenarios, our dependent variables, the static, what have you, and, and ask them their opinions. Meanwhile, the folks who just sort of say, yeah, here's my, here's my thoughts, and then they weren't getting this randomized feedback, those are the folks we consider to be in the baseline condition. And we just present them with the exact same you know, static, the exact same scenarios, and we see how their reactions differ. Another way we look at this is by asking people to recall a time in their life in which they either had control or lacked control and sort of vividly reimagine and re-experience that situation. I'm sure everyone listening can recall a time in which you were very angry at someone you were close to, whether a colleague or a family member or a friend. And you know, after the exchange was over, you walked away and you said, I'm going to be the bigger person. I'm going to let this go. I'm going to calm down. And then you know, one of the just particularly stinging things they said to you rises back into your mind and you're angry all over again. The idea behind these recall tasks is that by deeply recalling a situation in which you had or you lacked control, you're going to re-experience it. You're going to recreate that mindset, however briefly. And then we're going to be able to look at the results of that mindset or those experiences you know, on what we're presenting you with. And so primarily there's a lot of different ways we look at it. We try and recreate that experience based on people's own lives. We try to create the experience for them by running them through a task in which they, you know, either lack control or sort of in the baseline. Sometimes we just ask them, how do you feel about your ability to do what you set your mind to right now? Or do you have control over the things that are happening to you? And so, for example, in the studies where we were looking at support for leaders who espouse conspiratorial theories, we revisited those participants. So we asked them before lockdown and during lockdown, or we asked them before the election and after the election. And what we saw is the same people, you know, experienced a drop in control or how much control they said they felt during as opposed to pre-lockdown. So COVID, it seems to me, sort of a classic example of how this works. There was so much uncertainty about it at the outset and a lot of mixed messages coming from Washington. I agree. I mean, the whole experience of the pandemic has been one in which people felt like they lacked control. Our normal rhythms of our lives were upset, thrown into chaos, sometimes destroyed entirely. Some of us were fundamentally limited to our homes. And so all of our daily connections that we had between, you know, people we saw at work, people we saw at the coffee shop we went to, all of the expectations we had for how the workplace ran were broken. And then some of us were on call all of the time, working overtime in highly uncertain and dangerous situations, particularly when we weren't sure how COVID-19 was spreading exactly. So particularly people in healthcare, but also others in positions that were termed necessary. And so suddenly their days, while they were still at work, were also thrown into chaos, became incredibly unpredictable as they were overstressed, overstrained, and you know, often felt like they might be you know, in real danger. 
So you indicated earlier that this leads people to try to seek order and find patterns that don't really exist. Why are they so negative? Why are they often challenging authority in so many different ways? So one thing to say is I don't think we automatically prefer to see threatening patterns, right? I think if we were given the opportunity, you know, in some situations, we might actually seek out more positive patterns. When we're faced with one of two alternates, either we look at the world and we recognize how unpredictable, how random many events are, or we invest in a pattern or structure or story that suggests that, in fact, the world is controllable. There are people who have control over it. It is predictable. These people have goals. They're agentic. And if you can figure out the goals, you might be able to figure out what these people or agencies are going to do. And so while threatening, while those goals are often negative or harmful, when we are faced with the idea of looking directly at randomness, or at least believing that the world is not random, even if threatening, it can be very appealing to pick the non-random option, even if it involves the threatening elements alongside it. Social media use increased vastly as a result of the pandemic. How important is social media? We hear about algorithms all the time. How does that fit into your theories and your own research about control? I mean, I think social media was a critical uh, medium through which conspiratorial beliefs spread during the pandemic. Now, that's with the caveat. Conspiracy beliefs have been around for a really long time. They do not need social media to spread. But social media sure can give them a leg up. So particularly during pandemic times, we were often either isolated from others, or if we were still out in the workplace, then we didn't have time to talk to them. We didn't have time to connect on a human level. So a lot of our human connections, both in terms of finding other people to talk with and also to gather information, came through social media. And we know that there are a lot of aspects of social media that don't exactly ensure the best information is rising to the top. Algorithms tend to select on, on more negative information, information that drags our attention. I mean, conspiracy theories are more attention grabbing than the idea that, well, no one's quite sure what's going on, but we're working on it. Of course, social media also allows us to cluster ourselves into little smaller groups that often turn into echo chambers. Then you get a whole bunch of the, the nasty group decision-making dynamics that can come into play where people can reinforce each other's belief, in order to sort of gain status in the group. Sometimes you spread an even more aggressive belief and then you're egged on by other people in that group. And so it can create a really vicious cycle. I've seen you cited as an authority on this and very particularly saying how surprised you were that misinformation spreads faster than truth. Why is that? It's interesting, right? I think a lot of times misinformation is stickier, is more vibrant than accurate information. There's an interesting observation, which is if you look at conversations people have in fiction, in books, it's all very elegant and beautiful and flashy with the key pieces of exciting information coming to the fore and not a lot of boring information in it. And so if you actually were to transcribe a conversation between two people, it would be mind-numbingly boring by comparison because we pause, we hem, we haw, we start things over multiple times, we state things very vaguely. And I think what it comes down to is the real world's messy. Even in a conversation where we know each other, we're starting and stopping sentences. It's not a perfect and elegant story. But misinformation is often a more elegant story than what's really happening in the world around us. And so it's easier to understand, often catchier 
you know, if you're thinking about, hey, am I going to retweet this? Are you going to retweet something that's the, you know, equivalent of a hemming and hawing and umming and people restarting sentences? Are you going to retweet this beautiful, clean story that feels satisfying and seems to explain what's going on in the world around us, even if it's really just more likely to be, you know, a very pretty painting? So I suppose that when you're searching for order, one of the great things about a conspiracy theory is it's simplistic and it doesn't require you to take in all the details and look at the context and study things in a complex way as it does require if you want to get to the truth. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to think of it. I will, I guess, hedge a bit and say, of course, when you look very closely at conspiracy theories, they become very complicated. But I think the thing that makes them appealing, particularly when we lack control, is at the high level, they offer an elegant explanation for what's going on. Is it any easier to get people to change their minds about things than it is when they're focused on a conspiracy theory that they simply don't want to give up in which they have a sort of identity with? So that's really interesting. And that's a question that I would really like to look at in the future. Uh, research has shown that it's very hard to get people to let go of conspiratorial beliefs. I'm actually very interested in the extent to which you can get people to let go of bad information or misinformation when that information is not connected to a conspiratorial belief. And then also, you know, because I'm a scientist and I like to dig into the mechanisms of things, you know, why is that? You know, assuming we can find a line between conspiracies and non-conspiratorial misinformation, what's going on? that makes people cling much harder to conspiracies than to simple bad facts. Well, what is going on and why is debunking so difficult and why does it in fact cause people to adhere to their misconstructions or misconceptions more when the truth is pointed out? This is coming out of work that's looking specifically at conspiracy theories, and that's very interesting. One thing that I want to make clear is I look very closely at how our sense of lacking control can drive conspiracy beliefs or will find conspiracy theories more believable, but there's a lot going on that might not necessarily have anything to do particularly with control. Political identity is one of those things. In fact, identities in general have been shown to be sort of drivers of conspiratorial beliefs, endorsement of conspiratorial beliefs, spread of conspiratorial beliefs. And so one of my papers, which just came out that I published with Cynthia Wang at Kellogg's Dispute Resolution Research Center and Benjamin Dow at Southern Methodist University that we're really interested in, looks at support of conspiratorial leaders. And what we find is a critical factor is political identity. So what we're finding is that some conspiracies are naturally more appealing to people based on their political identity. The conspiracies involve bad actors who happen to be groups of people or government entities that that political identity already dislike and distrust. Or the argument around the, the conspiracy belief is in alignment with pre-existing emotional issues of that particular identity. And so, for example, one of our studies show that Pre versus during COVID-19 lockdown, we all quite naturally felt a decrease in control. And then we looked at whether people supported a leader who spread a particular political belief more. And what we found is that when we presented people with a leader who espoused a conspiracy belief about paid protesters, everybody had felt a reduction in control, but our Republican identifying participants increased support for that leader, not our Democratic participants. However, everybody increased support for a leader who espoused conspiracies around the origins of COVID-19. 
And so what this suggests is some conspiratorial beliefs are more universal. On the other hand, ideas around paid protesters were more in alignment with people who had a Republican identity. And so those conspiracies became more appealing for those people when they lacked control, but not so for folks of other identities. And so this suggests there's also sort of a meta level, a social level, a cultural level, a political level at which these conspiracies are also operating. That's just fascinating. So what about a situation such as we have one leader, obviously, who is devoted to conspiracy theories, namely the former president of the United States. And we have members of his party going along with a lot of the conspiracy theories that he advocates, most specifically that the election was a fake. Are they really on to something in the sense that they can appeal to other Republicans? And is that the source of what appears to be their dishonesty about the truth and accuracy of the conspiracy theories? I mean, I think one thing to point out is that one of the themes that emerges again and again in my research is that we are all vulnerable to conspiracy theories. Put any one of us in a situation in which we are lacking control, we're seeking structure, put a conspiracy theory in front of us that is built to flatter one of our central identities or support it or direct our negative attention in a particular area. And that's going to be very appealing, no matter who you are, right? You might not actually invest in the belief, but it's going to look pretty. What we are showing in our most recent paper is that when we look at people's support for leaders who espouse conspiratorial rhetoric, when people lack control, they are broadly more likely to support those leaders and particularly more likely to support those leaders when the conspiracies line up with crucial identities of those individuals. And it sounds to me, too, as if we're far enough through the process of accepting conspiracy theories that when it is pointed out that the results are wrong, the conspiracy advocates then redouble their efforts instead of accepting what appears to be truthful. I think a lot of it comes down to trust. And obviously, if someone is invests in conspiracies that say, you know, the government or powerful entities are plotting against them or the well-being of people they care about or their country, then you're not going to want to trust those entities. One of the effects conspiracy theories have is they eat away the trust we have in the institutions around us. There's a paper that is not mine, but that I've always thought is very interesting that shows that when people endorse the statement that Princess Diana did not actually die in a tragic accident, but was assassinated by MI6. Those people are also more likely to endorse the statement that Princess Diana is still alive and in hiding. You could sit back and laugh at this. Like, this is hilarious. What, you think she was assassinated by a group of people and is still simultaneously alive? But what the people who were doing this research discovered is that the root driver of, you know, when people endorsed both of those statements is distrust in the official story. People say, you know what, I don't believe this official story. Yeah, it was probably one of these things. I don't care which one it is, but the likelihood that it's true, I, you know, I'm, I'm more likely to endorse any of these things because I don't like the official story. And so I think that's part of what is really pernicious because a lot of times the information that would disprove those conspiracy beliefs or debunk them is coming from areas that are targeted. You're a professor of management and organizations at UCLA Anderson. How does this research apply there? I mean, I think very broadly, there's a lot of times in the workplace, in our lives, in which, you know, we do feel we lack control, right? If you're in an organization, rumors of layoffs are spreading, or, you know, you're on a complicated project where you're interdependent with a lot of people and things are simply not working, right? You cannot control the outcome of the situation very well. Then it can be really important to take a step back and recognize that you might be currently in a mindset where you are likely to be seeking structure. 
whether the project that you're on is one where you're trying to make sense of perhaps an evolving area of your industry, making sure that you're you know, double checking your instincts on that. Or conversely, if you start to suspect that people in your team are talking around behind your back, maybe taking that with a grain of salt, giving them the benefit of the doubt and trying to reconnect with them rather than, than being more suspicious in the situation. So another interesting thing to think about when you're in the workplace, if you're in a situation in your life in which you're lacking a lot of control, you might want to seek out, you know, even small oases where you do have control. Can you open up some time in your life in which, you know, you do have some sense of mastery or that it's not even an activity in which control is really a central factor, right? So, you know, sometimes people really love gardening. The purpose of the thing is not, you know, a sense of incredible control and amazing outcomes. You know, you're spending time out in nature or with living things. Can you spend time with family? Can you find something in your life that isn't a situation that prompts that lack of control and use that as a little bit of an oasis. It seems to me that it's important that it's not always a conspiracy theory that leads you to seek a structure and that needs you to be all the more alert to what you're doing if it's not so easy to understand as that, but still it's an inappropriate structure for whatever you're doing. Yeah, I think that's very right. You know, so just being aware, hey, is there any situation that I am making sense of things? I'm sort of figuring out what's going on. Coming into that from a sense where you really lack control, you might be more likely to hit some false positives. I mean, another way to think about that, however, instead of just trying to, you know, self-monitor yourself continuously, if you are in a place where you're trying to make sense of new data, new information, trying to understand a new situation then a different methodology may be to say like, all right, I'm not going to self-monitor for X amount of time. I'm going to take a chunk of time and I'm going to let myself just generate a lot of alternate explanations for what might be going on. And then after you've gone through that generational period, then stepping back and looking at these patterns you may or may not have perceived or that you've tentatively perceived and double checking them. Interesting with regard to the question of how long these things go on. Former President Trump was certainly aware of that because he got furious when the results in Arizona were announced too early, he thought, even though they were accurately announced, because he wanted it to continue. He wanted it to go on. He wanted people to wake up in the morning and still have it be undecided. And I think that's another question that I'm really interested in pursuing, which is how long do these illusory patterns last? How long do we cling to them? When are we more likely to discard them and move on? When are we more likely to double down and elaborate on them or invest more deeply in them? I assume sometimes we walk into a room, we're a little bit late to a meeting, it's already full of people, we feel a little bit like we're not controlling the situation, I'm not sitting where I usually sit, maybe the whole reason why I'm late is because I was running late, I didn't manage something properly. So a little bit of lack of control happening, not a lot, but enough. And you walk into the room, and I'm sure we've all experienced it, where in that perfect moment where you open the door and step in and the room bursts into laughter. But for a split second, you're like, they're laughing at me. But then we move past that. You know, a second later, you realize they're not laughing at me. I just came in at the perfect time when somebody told a joke and I'm going to settle in. But I imagine that is what is happening in many cases of illusory pattern perception. You know, very briefly, in that fit of lacking control, we make a connection. I walked into the room. They started laughing. It might be me. And then we realize, no, 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 no. Let it go. It just happenstance. 
And so to a great extent, we are able to let go of these patterns. And so what might make them more sticky, particularly in the case of conspiracy theories, is because conspiracy theories are much more complex than those simple causal connections than seeing a face in static. They're embedded in identity. They're embedded in history. They're embedded in our social groups that we belong to. And so they can be reinforced by those around us. And that might be part of what drives their stickiness. You have had a lot to say, and it has been absolutely fascinating. Is there anything you'd like to add before we finally have to bring this to an end? I think it's basically just to suggest that my research does show, as I said, that we can all be vulnerable to these processes. It's sort of a universal human vulnerability. It's a natural response we have when we're trying to get a better sense of control over a situation we're in. While I recognize that sometimes our first instinct when we encounter somebody who's clinging hard to a conspiracy theory that we do not believe ourselves, to dismiss them, right? To think it's some inherent thing about them, you know, some flaw, some obliviousness. It's their fault. They just won't listen to reason. And so we can dismiss them. And I think it would be to show a little kindness and a bit of understanding, right? Conspiracy theories can have really horrific effects on public life, on the way we behave towards each other. And they are something that we really need to work to eliminate. But what research has shown is that doing so by utterly dismissing their believers, by refusing to engage with them, by you know not reaching out to them, by not trying to ameliorate that situation is not the thing that's going to help. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. You are so comprehensive and also so enlightening and illuminating about your own research. It's just a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, Jennifer Whitson, Professor of Management and Organizations at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. Thank you so very much. Awesome. Thank you so much, Warren. This has been fantastic. I'm Orman Alney, host of How the World Works. Thanks for listening. Join us again.